Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Since I tend to figure that other people see the world the same way I do, I conclude that everybody wants to be an amputee, but there's a social taboo about talking about it. That's Dan. He has body integrity dysphoria, or BID. It's also referred to as body integrity identity disorder, or BIID. It's the feeling that one of your healthy limbs just doesn't belong, that having it attached to your body for the rest of your life is near unbearable. And it's extremely rare. Fewer than 400 cases have been recorded in medical literature. And if you're one of the few in the world who feel like Dan, and you'll hear more from him in a little bit, you probably don't talk openly about your feelings. You have no memories, traumatic or mundane, that give any clues as to why you feel this way. And hey, maybe it'll go away on its own. But it doesn't. The only thing that does seem to work is surgery, amputation. But that raises a lot of questions about medical ethics. Why would a doctor agree to amputate a perfectly healthy limb? To help us understand these issues, I turn to Dr. Richard B. Gibson, He's a bioethicist and moral philosopher currently at the University of Texas Medical Branch. His thesis was about the ethics of elective amputations, specifically for BIID. I asked him to talk about when he first started looking into this. It cropped up during my master's degree, which I did at King's College London. One of the uh, modules um, that we were covering, um, general bioethics, um, was on body modification. Um, and I thought, sort of reading the, the blurb beforehand, it would be things like you know, tattoos, piercings, stuff like that. But it Tongue splitting. Yeah, yeah, tongue splitting, subdermal implants, all those sort of things. But it, it turned out to be BID, whether you should be able to amputate your limbs if, if you simply desire to do so. And that sort of opened the door to all this research that I've done subsequently. So let's talk about some definitions. I see BIID, Body Integrity Identity Disorder, and BID, Body Identity Dysphoria. What are we talking about here? What are these things? They're roughly the same condition. I guess they are pretty much the same condition. It just comes down to the way we name things generally shapes how we think about them, right? So as understanding about this condition has changed and morphed over time, it's picked up these different qualities and terminology has changed. So originally, back in the 1970s, it was known as apotomenophilia, um, which one the, the suffix of philia obviously implies some sort of sexual desire, um, because the idea that this was a psychosexual disorder, that these people essentially found disabled people and the idea of disability so attractive that they themselves wanted to become disabled. And that name sort of stuck for a while up until the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when 
BIID, body integrity identity dysphoria, took over as the preferred term. Specifically, it wanted to engender comparison with gender identity um, disorder, as it was known at the time, because there was some parallels, um, which just makes sort of understanding the condition a lot easier. And then more recently, in 2019, the World Health Organization recognized this condition as a unique thing and include it in their um, the ICD-11, uh, sort of their essentially their diagnostic manual for understanding diseases and categorizing them. And they termed it body integrity dysphoria. Again, potentially emulating or trying to draw comparisons with what is now known as gender identity dysphoria. So if you were at a restaurant with a new friend and they said, what is this BID thing? What What is that? How would you explain it to them? It's characterized by an intense and persistent desire to become physically disabled uh, in a significant way. So normally it's amputation. That's the most common form. But there are potential other ways it can manifest. Things like wanting to become blind or become deaf. And this desire is accompanied by persistent discomfort about one's current body configuration or functioning. Right. Like. The fact you are not as you want to be is distressing to you as harm. And these have consequences, potentially trying to amputate a limb yourself or paying someone to amputate a limb or damaging a limb so severely that when you turn up to the hospital, a surgeon has no option but to amputate. Less severe than that is the simple preoccupation. The fact that you think about this constantly is always a presence in the back of your mind, and it impedes personal, family, social, educational, occupational progress. It's literally impairing you. The onset of the condition is typically in late childhood, early teens, but some rare cases it seems to present even earlier than that. And this lasts for decades. This isn't sort of a fleeting thing, a phase that people get over. People will have this for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, the symptoms, all the things that I've just discussed, they're not better accounted by another condition. And I think crucially, these people aren't delusional. They know this is a strange thing. Like they're not under any differences about that. They know people find this odd. Sometimes they themselves find this odd. And they know the limb is objectively healthy. They don't think it's diseased or they don't think it's unsightly to the point of distraction. They know it's odd and yet they still have this desire. Are there any historical examples that we know of um, of this condition and what happened? Yes, yeah. In the academic literature as is, as currently, the first case was in 1977. That's when it picked up that name, apotomenophilia. But going through the historical record, there is potentially a case coming out of uh, 1785 um, of a Englishman who paid a French surgeon 250 guineas. And unfortunately, I don't know what that is in uh, modern currency, but I think it's quite a bit of money um, to amputate his healthy leg. Like He wanted it gone at that point. Um, and he did so whilst holding a gun, forcing the surgeon to, to carry out this surgery. The gentleman in question survived. He went away. And later on, that, that French surgeon 
receives his payment and a letter of thanks. Like he, he the, the Englishman did not uh, skimp out on his, his deal. Because this is something that I imagine a lot of people don't talk about. We don't have a ton of data. And so the studies that you've done and the work you've done to try to understand this really are just with whatever you've got. At the same time, not that this radio show will single-handedly undo all that and open up the floodgates of people willing to talk about this, but like in your estimation, how common is this? It's not common at all. As you said, research into this is limited because of various reasons. The fact it's not common, the fact people don't know about it that much, the fact that if you have this disorder, you're not likely to come forward because people's reactions tend to be quite uh, emotionally driven. The, it is odd and people do express that. And those with the disorder don't want to be labelled as mad and... and, and um, belittled because of it. So there's a reluctance for people to come forward with the disorder. Some studies I've seen have put the prevalence of cases in the academic literature between 100 and 400 cases, which isn't a lot given how many people on the, are on the planet, how far back academic literature goes. But odds are there are more people with this, this disorder than that. They just have not come forward in these studies. But it's one thing that informs all the discussions about this condition is the fact we don't have the data. So a lot of questions about what causes this, how satisfied are people afterwards? We don't have the information. We need to do more research. From all we know, even with the difficulty in getting information and stats, is there a common thread between people who desire an otherwise healthy limb, physically healthy limb to be amputated? Like, is there any psychological thread that tends to run through them? It's predominantly men. It's predominantly uh, in the West, as opposed to in places like China or Japan, although cases have been identified there. People tend to come forward later in life rather than earlier. It tends to be the leg. It tends to be the left leg. And for most of those cases, it tends to be just below the knee. There is a precise point where people sort of point to and go, that's where my body ends. The rest of it is extra. And that's the extra bit that I want removed. I've heard there's a great book by Susie Orbach, uh, Bodies, where she describes the situation of a man who wanted to become an amputee. He consulted with a bunch of doctors. No one agreed to help him. So he decided to immerse his legs in dry ice, cut off the circulation that way so that a surgeon was then forced to remove both legs. What overall is the ethical perspective that we're wrestling with here when someone says, listen, I've been struggling with this my whole life. If you don't do it, I'm going to do it myself somehow. So help me. What, what, what are people in the medical field talking about when they talk about BID? Yes. Dry ice isn't the only method of doing this. It's the most common, but there's also cases of people laying under trains and letting them barrel over them, using shotguns, wood chippers, chainsaws, very much a bunch of gruesome stuff, um, black market surgeries as well. Um, there's been some cases of that, some unfortunately fatal cases, but people have not survived. In terms of the ethics, there is so much to discuss. You can come at this 
topic. This disorder from so many different angles. Um, generally, though, sort of the broad themes, we're talking about things like do no harm. Should surgeons be carrying out these things? Are they harming their patients? Are they acting in their patients' best interests? We're talking about things like autonomy. Can someone with this disorder actually consent to have this surgery occur? Does the disorder itself mean that they are unable to consent and that any surgery would be carried out without consent, which is a big no-no? Um, and finally, questions of justice, right? All medical health services in the world have to deal with limited resources. And if you give some resources to some people, you cannot give it to others. So if you're essentially, again, using crude terminology, creating disabled people via their own choice, not necessarily my opinion, you're then diverting resources away from people who are born disabled or have acquired disability through an accident, say. Do you ever think a consensus will be reached? Like this seems so multifaceted, like how, how, I guess I'll just stop talking. Do you ever think there will be a consensus reached on this? And if so, how would we possibly get there? I think a consensus is, is reachable. I think it's possible. How we get there, I am not sure. I, I know some arguments, I've made some arguments about justifying these amputations and with specific caveats attached to them. But opinion on this is very much divided, some in favor, some against. And So what would you like the consensus to be? The research I've done, the arguments I've made, boil down to these amputations are justifiable because people suffer if they don't get them. And we generally, for all other medical interventions, we, we think suffering is bad and we should prevent it as best we can with the tools that are available and the knowledge we have. At the moment, research is limited, data is not abundant, but what is available indicates that surgery, that amputation to realign that person's physical form with how they see themselves is effective at reducing that suffering. People no longer want to pack their leg in dry ice or lay under a train track or have this preoccupation constantly in the back of their mind, causing a myriad of other things. The information we have suggests it is effective. Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be something else that's more effective later down the line. Theoretically, yeah, we could create a, a single pill that you take it and your disorder magically goes away. Is it likely? Probably not. Is it possible? Yeah, sure. But we don't have access to that at the moment. What we have is what we have. And if yeah, we, we take the attitude that medicine should prevent suffering, it seems like there's an argument to be made here. We don't say for people who you know uh, are on chemotherapy, right? We don't turn to them and say, well, chemotherapy is actually very harmful in quite a number of ways. We're not going to give that to you. There's potentially something better. We don't know what that is. We don't have access to it. So you're not going to get the thing that we do have access to now. No, we work with what we've got. And what we've got at the moment in cases of BIID is a very limited data set that indicates amputation is effective. I wonder too, because this affects so few people that we know of, 
like any other rare condition, it doesn't get the funding it deserves. It doesn't get the attention it deserves, the airtime it deserves, and it being something that can be perceived as shameful, uh, embarrassing, misunderstood, um, can exile a person from their community if they were to speak of it openly. It feels like an uphill battle, unlike some other conditions that are also rare. Yes. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the need to be kind generally. It's nice, but the need to be kind specifically when it comes to rare and misunderstood medical conditions and disorders. Because these are people. Yes. What they want is weird. I will not say otherwise. And from the people I've talked to who have, BID, they know it's odd. But that oddness doesn't take away from their suffering. And I think it's important to remember that these are people, they should be able to live their lives like we imagine everyone else should be able to live their lives, free of suffering, happy, flourishing. That was Dr. Richard B. Gibson. He's a bioethicist and moral philosopher currently at the University of Texas Medical Branch, We'll hear more from him and what he hopes for in the future for people who have body integrity identity disorder. When we get back, Dan talks about the amputation he fought for decades to get. I squeeze my stump with my hand and say, gee, this feels nice. I am so lucky. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. For most of his life, Dan, from Wyoming, and he's only using his first name to protect his identity, would look down at his legs and think... Something along the lines of, that's just wrong. As someone with one of the few known cases of body integrity identity disorder, or BIID, the only option he felt confident would relieve his discomfort was surgery. And after starting a support group called Fighting It, doing tons of research, going to therapy and conferences and well, saving as much money as he could, in 2009, he flew to Asia, where one willing surgeon amputated his left leg under the knee. I asked him when he first remembers wanting to be rid of a limb. Well, I don't remember ever not wanting to be an amputee. 
As far as below the knee, uh, I guess I considered lots of possibilities for lots of years. And uh, the only thing I really totally couldn't accept was having four limbs. So I know I didn't think about it much until the first time I saw an amputee and I was about five, four or five. And I told my mother, he is very lucky. And she gave me a long, long lecture on why that wasn't the case. And uh, since I tend to figure that other people see the world the same way I do, I concluded that everybody wants to be an amputee, but there's a social taboo about talking about it. When you saw that man who was an amputee, can you talk about why you felt he was lucky? I don't know. At first, I envisioned that he could look at the end of his stump, which was very short, and see all the blood vessels and interesting things there. And, and my mother said, oh, no, it gets skin over it. And then I thought about that, and that seemed pretty nice, too. I, I, I don't think I really got into why it was pretty nice. It just was. Now, I, I did um, therapy in France with a Jungian for three years. And he thought that it stems from when you're about two and you first start to walk and you also start to say no. And if your mother absolutely cannot accept you ever saying no, maybe you connect this with walking and you say, well, maybe I could be loved if I couldn't walk. It seems to resonate. You make me think about how when I was in middle school, there were maybe two times where I wrapped an ace bandage around my wrist, my perfectly fine wrist, and went to school with this ace bandage on. And people would ask, what happened? And I'm sure I lied and came up with some kind of story, but I got attention and care from people because I had this ace bandage on. Does that resonate in the same way with what it felt like for you or what you wanted? Yeah. Um, now, I got bullied all through school, although I wanted to be an amputee long before school. So I would always imagine, well, I mean, being an amputee wouldn't save me from bullying, but at least I'd have grown-ups that would say, don't bully him, which I did not ever. But uh, I have noticed uh, a lot of kids will play at being an amputee or having another disability. And I'm thinking of how uh, Freud said that homosexuality was being caught in a normal development stage and just getting stuck there. I got stuck there. <laughs> I guess we all get stuck somewhere, huh? Yeah, maybe. But in my opinion, most people are a lot more stuck than me. But they don't do anything about it. Or they don't enjoy being what they are and they don't know what they could do about it. And I enjoy being what I am. So in 2001, September of 2001, you told your wife, you came out to your wife. Um, tell me about that. Well, it was at night in bed, and I was trying to work up courage to uh, tell her. And my heartbeat was going crazy because I was so scared of 
what the response would be. So I finally just said, well, I meant to tell you this for a long time, but I was afraid to, that I've always wished that I was an amputee. And she was pretty well shocked. She said, well, I want you to do some, do therapy and, uh, and do this. And I said, fine. And, and she was, she was very angry at me for not having told her before we were married. And I said, would you have married me if you knew? And she said, probably not. And she called me a liar. And so I was pretty unhappy about the whole situation. I'm sorry to hear that. And she's out of the house right now. In fact, you you didn't want to do this interview with her knowledge, right? Because even after all these decades, it's still pretty sensitive. Mm-hmm. I think she'd give me a hard time over it for a while, and I'd be worried that she'd come in and scowl at me. And she doesn't like me to be public about it uh, because she thinks it reflects on her. So by 2009... Um, you figured that nothing was relieving this, this desire, and you may as well be an amputee and enjoy life. How did all of that happen? How did you choose which, like, did you know the whole time it, you wanted to have your, your leg under the knee? How did that all go? It was a, a gradual process. Uh, for many years, I had wanted my right leg off above the knee. And really, before that, it started, it was like either leg, preferably above the knee. I injured my knee skiing, and it was painful, my right knee. And I said, well, it wouldn't be nice to have just one leg that had a painful knee. So I started imagining the left leg off. And then uh, the knee recovered, but the uh, change of preference didn't change. I mean, it just was, it was back to either one. And I was fighting it the whole while, doing therapy. I tried several different therapists. Everyone said, oh, I can cure this. And nobody had the slightest clue what it was or what they might do about it. And nothing helped in the slightest. And then the the youngest therapist I stayed with for three years because uh, at least I was learning something valuable, even if it didn't help with VIID. He thought he still thought he would cure it, but he admitted uh, uh, after a couple of years that it was taking a lot longer than he thought. But at three years, I said, well, wait a minute. Now, this hasn't got the least bit less intense. Uh, and uh, where are we going from here? And he said, well, Eventually, it will help. And I said, well, how long do you think it might be? And I really pressured him because he didn't want to say. And he said, finally, said 10 or 12 years. And I said, well, that's a guess. If we're making no progress in three years. How do I know I won't spend a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time for 10 or 12 years and still make no progress? So I called that quits. And then I, um, I concentrated on sports. I, I put more time into sports that would need two legs to see if that would help. I, and another approach I took was trying to imagine lesser amputations to see if that would be enough. So doing sports, uh, hiking, skiing, motorcycling, bicycling, all the time I did sports, I imagined doing, how could I do this as an amputee? 
because uh, pretty much all my life I imagined, how could I do anything I did as an amputee? What had occurred to me was that I could do everything I wanted to do as a bologna amputee, but there would be some difficulties for some of those activities as an above-knee amputee. Not, not for everyday life, but for sports. So I started thinking more and more in terms of being a bologna amputee, and the more I thought about it, the more it seemed nice. And maybe it would be enough. I was not sure it would be enough. But um, I, I said, well, maybe I can walk this thing right off the end. And so I tried imagining be, uh, being an amputee at the ankle or having toes off, but that never made any traction at all. Below the knee was about as far as I could get it. I was not seeing any progress. I also tried with the help of therapists just about every kind of psychoactive medication that you could try, and none of those helped at all. To the extent that like an SSRI would decrease the need to be an amputee, it did so slightly, but it would also decrease the need to do anything else just as much. Uh, and I did, I'd much rather be an amputee than a zombie. So I went to a couple conferences on BIID, one in New York, and uh, then later on, one in Frankfurt, Germany. And Frankfurt was kind of the last ditch. I was going to see if there was anything that I didn't know already. And uh, two things, uh, well, there's several things that struck me. One is there was a bunch of talks on bioethics that were pretty interesting. I met a man who was in his mid-80s from England and talked at some length. He had wished intensely all his life that he wanted to be an amputee but now he was too old and he would not and, and surgeons would not take him on and i thought what it would be what would it be like to still want to be an amputee and be too old to get surgery and it was just dreadful to think about and then there was a researcher in Frankfurt who was actually an engineer, not a medical person, who had developed a psychological technique to help an amputee friend with phantom pain and had had some good luck with it. And some of the uh, psychology research there were aware of him and were working with him. Uh, so I managed to get an appointment with him. And uh, actually, it was two of us, me and uh, arm amputee who did not have BIID. And he led us through a effectively a guided visualization that was very intense. And, and the purpose of it was effectively to make the affected limb disappear from your mind map. Uh, and the pain to go with it. And uh, it was helpful to the amputee, but for me, and I was imagining it on the left leg, it was strange because first you get a phantom leg and then you move it away from the physical leg and then the physical leg disappears and then the phantom leg disappears and the leg is completely off your body map. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And for a day afterwards, 
I could still walk, but somewhat clumsily, but it felt my, my leg was partly there in patches and it wasn't really on me. And I liked that sensation. So it increased VIAD rather than decreased it. And so at that point I figured, okay, there's probably nothing for this, but surgery. In 2009, you decided to pursue surgery. And there are so many, from a surgeon's point of view, ethically questionable things to consider. How in the world did you find someone who would amputate your left leg below the knee? Uh, it was through fighting it. There was one person uh, who had who had BIAD and who had found a surgeon in Asia and had become an amputee. And the way it happened was another person had just written a hundred or more letters to surgeons in other continents, I guess some in, in North America as well, just explaining the situation, asking would they help. And they did not get back any responses except from one surgeon in Asia uh, who read up on it and said, yeah, I'd consider this. The first surgeon that did this, eventually he felt he was in too much danger of being outed and quit. And uh, then it was a while before there was any other surgeon. Finally, somebody found another surgeon that was willing to do it. And we didn't know how long he was gonna be able to do that. So. Uh, so and there was a, a guy working with him, the guy with with a surgical amputation to screen people and and, and accompany them. Because the surgeon insisted you must be accompanied. He didn't want anybody being left alone. Uh, and especially in another country, it was really a pretty good approach. In the time leading up to the surgery, this is such a big deal. What's going through your mind? During the two weeks before, I had some serious up and down roller coaster feelings. Is this going to be enough? Because a lot of people who try and talk me out of it, you say, well, would say, including my wife, how do you know you're not going to want more off and keep getting more and more amputations? Or how do you know you won't be too disabled to enjoy life? And my gut feel was, this would be enough if it wasn't above knee would be, and I'd be able to complain about pain until I was able to get a revision. Uh, and then that would definitely be enough. But it was just me versus the world. And a few people with BIAD who had been through this. So I would, I would have really fear feelings about this. And then I would say, well, it's my feelings and I can trust my feelings, and then, but everybody tells me I can't trust my feelings and I'm crazy. And uh, I was up and down very intensely, uh, even on the flight to Asia. And uh, the, the gatekeeper asked me to keep a journal, and that was very helpful. So that was a very good move on his part. And um, so by the time I was ready to uh, undergo surgery, 
I was pretty well committed and uh, I didn't have any intense feelings at that time. I uh, just wondered how much pain is there going to be? Is there any risk to my life? Uh, surgeon assured me there wasn't, but of course he would. Um, and uh, I also remember uh, telling the surgeon in great detail exactly how I wanted the stump to be. And he finally said, now, wait a minute, I'm the doctor. And it's going to be the way the anatomy dictates. And I says, okay, you're the doctor. But it came out exactly the way I envisioned it. When you came to, you know, of course, you've got bandages. You can't see the actual stump quite yet. But um, when you looked down and you saw that space where your lower left leg once was, how did that feel? Well, I was still somewhat sedated, so I looked down and made sure that that was gone, and then I just felt relief. And when you finally got to see it with the bandages off, what was that like? Well, it was pretty ugly, uh, swollen and puckered and all that, uh, as they generally start out. And uh, I said, uh, well, this is great, and it's going to get better. Why do you think the surgeon did it? Well, he told me that he is a Christian and he prayed about it at some length with his wife and uh, he studied about it and uh, he realized that people were really suffering and he came to be comfortable in his own mind that this did not constitute doing harm. How much did it cost? It cost uh, about $22,000 plus airfare. Were you able to pay in installments? No, and that's one reason I waited so long. <laughs> that was Dan from Wyoming. He has Body Integrity Identity Disorder, or BIID. After the break, what does Dan think about folks like me, who still has all four limbs? My feeling is that people who haven't tried being an amputee don't know what it's like, and maybe they'd like it. And more from Dr. Richard Gibson, a bioethicist and moral philosopher who studied BIID. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Here's a clip from Missing Peace, a documentary about body integrity identity disorder, or BIID, featuring people who feel like their bodies would only feel right if they were in some way disabled. The idea of going from able body to disabled is not something that people consider acceptable. And becoming an amputee in an accident or a paraplegic or blind would be the worst thing that could happen to them. So the idea that somebody would want that is inherently unacceptable. So I think there'll always be a problem with acceptability. What's hard about being different is having the confidence in yourself to be yourself. At times I could say that I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed. I am proud of who I am, but it's, it's hard being different. Different is beautiful. It took a long time for me to be self-accepting about having BIID. And I think, and I certainly hope, we are gradually moving to a society where people are not 
badly judged for being different, but are simply accepted as, as one example of the massive and delightful spectrum of human possibilities. We've been getting to know Dan, who has BIID, a super rare condition he shares with fewer than 400 people, as recorded in medical literature. I wanted to know, now that he's had his left leg under the knee amputated, does he have any urge to continue amputating? Not really. Uh, I, I fantasize some about it, but it's only a fantasy, and I'm just perfectly happy to be the way I am. I squeeze my stump with my hand and say, gee, this feels nice. I am so lucky. So I have no urge to be anything different. Now, have you ever read uh, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven by Mark Twain? No. Uh, he imagines uh, a guy who visits to heaven and comes back alive to tell about it. And so this is heaven the way Mark Twain would envision it. And of course, Mark Twain was not particularly religious. In his version of heaven, you get to have a body of whatever age you like, and uh, you're issued wings, but you don't have to keep them on. And most people fly around for a while and then stash them in the closet. And most people try being young for a while and get tired of that and settle in around 40. So I was thinking, okay, what would I do? This would be great. And if there's a heaven, I would. this is what kind I would want. I would probably settle in about age 40. I would probably make more use of wings than most people because I love every aspect of aviation. But I would try every possible amputation for a while. Uh, and then I'd settle in and spend most of the time uh, probably with a, a left leg above the knee. Because that would be a little bit more perfect. And in Captain Stormfield's heaven, you can imagine being where you want to be and be there so uh, the disability would not be an issue. So yeah, I would try every possible amputation or combination of amputations from time to time just to see how it was. But then I just settle in being a single leg amputee. When you see most people who have all four limbs, and we were talking earlier about how you wonder if this is what everybody actually feels but isn't honest with themselves, that they want what you want, when you see someone like me, your wife, anyone who has four limbs, do you feel, well, I won't put words in your mouth, how do you feel about us? Well, I'm happy that you feel happy to be the way you are. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you how you need to be, but my feeling is that people who haven't tried being an amputee don't know what it's like and maybe they'd like it. When you're out and about, and you don't have your prosthetic leg on and somebody's curious and they ask, hey, how'd you lose your leg? What do you say? If, it, if it's a casual acquaintance or if it's somebody that I know but I think is narrow-minded, I will say it's a long story or it was a medical issue and leave it go at that. Uh, I, I thought of uh, coming up with really elaborate stories um, 
Like, have you ever read the book, The Milagro Beanfield War? No. There's a there's a chapter in there where an arm amputee spins a really long tale about how a bright yellow butterfly landed on his arm and laid eggs. And later on, caterpillars came out of it and the arm fell off. And and I've been tempted to do something like that. But as I said, I'm not very good at lying. I don't like lying and even telling a tall tale I'm not very good at. So uh, I'd like to do that, but I don't think I could pull it off. Plus, Mark Twain said, tell the truth, then you don't have to remember anything. Right. In a perfect world, how do you think people who have your condition, body integrity, identity disorder, how would they get the bodies they so desperately desire? Well, hopefully, if there's enough research, and probably it won't show a cure, at least not for most, And the research will show, in fact, there's plenty of research now uh, to show this, that almost all people who have amputations for BIID are happy with the results. So there will be no obstacle. And I expect in a really far future that limbs can be regrown and uh, most amputees will be BIID amputees. And there also will probably be a lot more of them than there are now because they won't have to be in the closet. And you'd say that most of them are currently in the closet. Yes. And that's one of the big obstacles to further research. So you could have said no to this interview. Why did you say yes? Well, I don't care uh, what people think about me. Uh, I'm happy to be the way I am. I can help others by getting information out. And frankly, it's fun. Dan, thank you so much for talking with me. I enjoy talking with you. Now let's get back to Dr. Richard Gibson. He's a bioethicist and moral philosopher who studied BIID. I wanted to know, when he pictures the future of medicine and, well, the world for people with BIID, what does that perfect world look like for them? So I'm reluctant to put put words in people's mouths. I do not have this condition, right? So I, I cannot speak from personal experience. I would always advise talking to people with BIID about this, what they envision the perfect world looking like. At a guess, I would say, not necessarily acceptance, but that people take this disorder seriously, that they're not ridiculed, that they're not instantly sent off to a psychologist or their mental faculties are not instantly questioned. And of course, we do need to ask those questions, right? A desire to amputate a limb can be indicative of other disorders for which surgery would not be the correct treatment and we need to make sure that if people are getting surgery it has the desired outcome it does reduce that suffering that reduction is long term and that there are no less drastic interventions available but in terms of the perfect world enough resources for all disabled people to engage with society as they want and need be that whether they 
become disabled because they've had this disorder or because they were an accident or because it's congenital, whatever it is. That to me would be the perfect world where disability is not as a barrier to social inclusion. Well, I've somehow asked everything I planned on. Did I miss anything? Any gaping holes? Anything weighing on your heart? Mostly that more research is needed into this condition. That working with the available data we have is what is required right now. But we need more research. We need more data. We need to hear the voices of the people who have this disorder before amputation, immediately after amputation, and long-term studies, decades after. So we can answer the questions of whether these amputations are actually effective two, three, four decades after they, they occur. What we have at the moment seems to indicate that, but it's such a small data set that it's hard and potentially unjustifiable to draw strong conclusions. At the moment, we are doing what we can with what we got, but we need more. Well, Dr. Richard Gibson, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our interns Elizabeth Van Arnhem and Melody Rivera. Special thanks to Dr. Gianluca Zaeta in Zurich, Switzerland, for sharing his insights with us. He's a neurosurgeon researching BID. Since you loved this show, scroll back through our archive to hear other episodes featuring people with rare conditions, like one man who is incapable of feeling any physical pain, and hear from people who are able to remember nearly every detail of their lives since childhood, as if it were happening right now. Oh, and what's life like when you can smell cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and Parkinson's? You can hear all of our mind-opening conversations at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that loving review on Apple Podcasts. That really makes our hearts sing. Send me your thoughts from today's show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. Or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>